This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Okay, hello everyone. Uh, I'm here with our fearless leader and East President, Dan Couric, uh, heading into the annual meeting, which is uh, the, uh, the capstone event of the President year. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Dan. Oh, Matt, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So uh, first we just want to know, you know, you, you're finishing your year as, as East President, an experience that most people don't get to have. Uh, just wondering, what, what are some of the things about your President year, you know, that were most exciting or things that you're most proud of accomplishing during the year? Well, I think one of my um, – uh, there's been a lot of work done uh, over the last few years by the East Presidents of uh, maintaining our – organization's relevance by Dr. Sagraves and then restructuring of the board um, last year by Dr. Davis. And one of my focuses wanted, uh, uh, for the year was to really get back to our mission statement about developing uh, young leaders. Um, with the help of Cindy Talley, we did a, um, a fellowship or a fellow survey to try to get an idea how well our organization uh, is doing with our young members and and soon-to-be members, uh, so that was very exciting. I actually um, will be talking about some of those results in my presidential address. Well, we're looking forward to it. And so, so for the uh, say the new East member who's just coming to the meeting for the first time, uh, you know, what, what are some of the uh, the highlights uh, or events that they should really look for and try and attend? Well, certainly our our Tuesday workshops, and uh, the workshops are um, very specific and address a lot of specific needs. So if somebody really has a question on one of those topics, uh, I would certainly encourage people to to try to hit that workshop. Um, uh, If this is your first meeting, you'll notice that it's a very relaxed meeting. It's a very family-friendly meeting. Uh, And if you want to get involved, just get out and talk to people. There's a lot of work to do uh, within the organization, and everybody – all the various divisions uh, need help. So I say uh, get out, talk to people, go to the receptions, and and uh, just meet the, all the people and make this organization so special. And then certainly our scientific session um, is, uh, is well-packed with a, a lot of great science. So uh, let me ask you this. Anything, anything about the year as president or the job as president that was surprising to you or that, you know, you, you – didn't appreciate until you were in the position. I tell you, after I, I, I've been on and off the board for about 15 years now, and so nothing really surprised me. Uh, this was a very um, kind of quiet year. We've had some controversies over the last few years uh, with the restructuring of the organization, and uh, and that's all. It all kind of went away this year. Uh, we had a a good year of just moving forward and and trying to think. Uh, again, going back to what uh, Dr. Sagrave says, is trying to become relevant as an organization. We're up over 2,000 members now, and I, I think our founding fathers would have never thought that this organization would have been that big. So uh, to be honest with you, it was, it was a, nothing surprising. It was actually a very good year just being able to move the organization forward. 
All right, and then uh, to close out, you'll be you'll be passing the baton to uh, the incoming East President Nicole Stass. And uh, any words of advice you would give her, or particularly any uh, any big challenges uh, you see that she's going to face, and that you'd uh, give her some words of advice about. Well, I think uh, some of the things I found out when we did the survey for our young members was that uh, East continue or needs to continue to reach out to young members. There's about I believe 36 or 37 percent of uh, graduating fellows uh, don't belong to a national organization. So I did challenge her with that, try to come up with venues uh, and ways to reach out to uh, senior residents and fellows to get involved with our organization. And uh, Nicole has been so intertwined in the organization over the last few years and is so energetic that uh, she will do a great job. I'm not worried about uh, her talent. All right. Well, Stan, I really appreciate you appreciate you talking to us and and as one of the section chairs you know appreciated your leadership over the year and we're looking forward to a great meeting thanks Matt. all right i'm here with andrew bernard who was the chair of the program committee for this year's meeting so so everything we saw and done at the meeting this year was thanks to him and his committee um so uh, you want to real briefly just tell us about the meeting this year and and the organization and the highlights matt every year i tell myself it can't get any better and every year it just gets better and frankly that's a testament to the members of the annual scientific assembly section the, the program committee and it's a testament to the other committee and section leaders in the organization who put forth material for folks who don't know how these meetings form they are a group effort we go with a general template of what's worked well in the past but every year the content changes, and it changes by people putting forth material that they think is new, hot, attractive, or appealing to the, the folks that attend the meeting. So every year you're going to see some old standards, and every year you're going to see some fresh stuff. So it's never going to be the same meeting. That's one of the things that makes this so exciting. So, so can anyone submit proposals for sessions, or is it just just for the section chairs or the leadership? You know, anybody can put forth ideas, and this is a young surgeons organization. So, everybody out there is taking care of patients, reading what's in the literature, and coming up with questions in their head or ideas in their head about things that are unknown or things they can share with somebody else. So, the simple answer to your question is yes. Anybody can put forth an idea. In general, the ideas will come through sections, previously known as committees in the organization. They'll put forth those suggestions formally as proposals. But anybody can contact me or any member of the program committee and put forth ideas. And all that stuff is taken into consideration in a two-day meeting every year in July. We get everybody in the room. We put all those ideas together, and we come out with a format for the meeting. It's a great two-day experience. I wish everybody could experience it. So what were the what were the highlights, would you say, of the meeting? I mean, we, you know, we know we have the scientific sessions where they present papers, but what else was going on that, that you really liked? We did a couple of new things this year that were exciting. We heard from the membership that they wanted more opportunity to get their work on. So what we did is add two 10-paper quick-shot sessions. So by adding those 20 papers, we increased the number of papers accepted at the meeting by about 25%. That was in direct response to the membership saying, hey, I'd like more opportunity to get my science on. So we get about 300 abstract submissions, and we've previously had about 75 slots. That's factored to, uh, between 35 oral 
papers and 40 posters. So that was a 25% acceptance rate. So now by adding 20 quick shots, we'd be able to increase that. If we get the same number of abstract submissions this year, about 300, we'll be able to take a third of the uh, abstracts that are submitted, assuming we've got decent quality, and we always do. So that's been a major change this year that I think's added to the, the breadth and depth of the meeting, and that's been in direct response from the members about what they wanted. Something else that was new this year, really exciting, uh, a brainchild of President Stan Couric was the Fellows Workshop. We've had a leadership development workshop for a number of years. I remember participating in that when I was a young East member and faculty member. But this year we added a session that was specifically targeted at fellows and senior residents. Yes, it was some of, of the similar material that we talk about in the leadership development workshop, but really catered to folks a few years younger at that transition out of fellowship into practice. So it has a different flavor, a different focus, and so far, the reviews for that have been really positive, and I'm sure you're going to see that on next year's program. All right, and you, you and your uh, section were also responsible for the scientific session, the residence session, and picking the uh, winners of the paper competition. Uh, so what did you guys uh, decide on your two winners? Yeah, the Raymond Alexander paper competition is, is always the start-off to the meeting. We take the best work from the young folks in the organization – and we take 10 or 11 papers. The opening two sessions on Wednesday morning are the Raymond Alexander paper competition. So for the Raymond Alexander paper competition winners, we pick one clinical paper. We pick one basic science paper. We recognize those winners at the awards ceremony. There's a bit of a cash prize involved. And there's the opportunity to sit up on the podium and moderate the next year's Alexander sessions. So this is really cool. So this year's basic science winner was a, a paper on, on use of uh, novel technology in a, a new area of interest in the field of trauma, and that's REBOA. So this was an infrared sensor to be applied in circumstances of REBOA insertion that allowed the uh, surgeon to assess level of aortic occlusion. And that was from uh, Kyle Sokol. Uh, there's an app for that was the name of the paper a handheld smartphone-based infrared imaging device to assess adequacy and level of aortic occlusion. So that was our basic science winner. Our clinical winner was actually from, from Britain, and that was Simon Glasgow. And his group, including Karen Brohe, uh, developed a, a computer modeling system for mass casualty events that allows one to assess their blood capacity and the point at which they will exhaust their blood capacity. And, of course, this will consider number of casualties, severity of casualties, available blood on hand, and how quickly one can access additional blood outside their in-hospital stock. So they put all of that into a computer modeling system and were able to rehearse scenarios varying each of those factors and determine that, quite frankly, if you're going to get very many casualties, and I'm talking about the difference of, of 10 to 20 or 20 to 40, you'll need either a substantial amount of blood on hand, more than you anticipate, or you'll need the ability to quickly resupply quicker than calling and asking for it, such that in a mass casualty event, if you're really getting a significant number of high-acuity casualties, these are level 1, level 2 activations, you need a system to push blood in not summon and request blood. 
So that should be part of your mass casualty event preparation. Two great papers. They were all fantastic. Like I said, we always pick the best stuff. But those were the two we selected this year for the winners. All right. And then any other papers in the sessions that you really liked and want to highlight? There was there was a great paper from a young medical student. And I know this, this one's already been discussed by somebody else. Young medical student uh, up at Shock talking about the uh, use of the SIREN database for for determining the role of osteopenia and sarcopenia and in injury severity. And I like this paper for a number of reasons. One, it's a, it's a medical student. Uh, two, she'd clearly been mentored well. Her presentation from the podium was flawless. Three, it was a new spin on frailty. We've, we've to this point, talked about the role of frailty, measured a lot of different ways, on outcome. This was using the SIREN database, which for those of you who don't know, is based upon crash engineering data incorporated with clinical data to look at the role of frailty, in this case sarcopenia, osteopenia, on injury severity. So are you more likely to be more severely injured if you are osteopenic, sarcopenic? So it's a different spin on something we've been talking about related to older patients from a medical student who was well-mentored up on the podium. I loved it. All right. Well, it's been a great meeting. And uh, last question, uh, is there anything that you already have uh, planned for 2017 that, uh, that is going to be new and exciting? I've had a lot of suggestions about what we can do differently next year. Like I said, every meeting is, is going to be a little bit different. I know we're going to have the quick shots. I think we might do posters differently. Uh, we're, we're always toying with how to make the posters optimally interactive, but also use technology. So maybe the way we display or show the posters will be a little different. I've had a great suggestion about videos. Could we have a video session where folks could show techniques or clinical scenarios in a video format? I think that would be exciting, too. We'll see what the annual scientific assembly section comes up with in July. It'll be another great ASA section planning meeting. These are such creative individuals. Send your content. We love all the suggestions. We'll get together in July. 2017 is going to be fantastic. I hope everybody can be there. All right. Well, thanks a lot for talking to us, and we're looking forward to another great meeting next year. Thanks, man. All right. I'm here with Bryce Robinson and Rob Winfield, who uh, moderated one of the sessions today. We heard some great work, and uh, I asked them to pick out their top couple favorite presentations. So what did you guys think? I mean, for me, there were two uh, two of the presentations that clearly stood out uh, during that time. I thought they were all excellent, but the two that really jumped out at me were the uh, one from uh, University of Maryland on osteopenia and sarcopenia as measures of frailty as opposed to just age, and then the other was the um, was the review of active shooters. Uh, I think that was so timely and um, and you know again highlighted some of the uh, the. Uh, good things and bad things that we have going for us in kind of reviewing those incidents and figuring out how we can how we can better save lives after trauma so 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 why don't you tell us a little about the uh sarcopenia study what did they look at and what did they find right so um what they did was they um they reviewed patients who had been in automobile accidents and um and then stratified them based on ct scan measurements where they did cross-sectional areas of the psoas muscle and based on psoas muscle area, they found that as patients aged and became sarcopenic, so their, their um, psoas muscle area decreased, that correlated with poorer outcomes following injury. So really a fascinating study.
Yeah, something easy to do since we scan everybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Now, the active shooter one, I, I was there and her. I actually discussed that. Mm-hmm. Great talk. Um, we did a whole trauma cast debate on that, so uh, listeners can go listen to that. Uh, what do you think, Bryce? What else? I really, I really like the active shooter. I think for me, you know, you're taught from the military experience that you got to put these tourniquets, and these are all going to be extremity wounds. And how many times have we sat down with our pre-hospital personnel and had those lectures? And gosh, when you actually looked at the data from the United States, we're not seeing that. So for me, that's going to take me. I'm going to go back to my community with that abstract in my hand and really say, okay, yes, we got to teach tourniquets, but maybe it's a little bit more. Maybe it's compressible hemorrhage and these other things. And I think Alex Eastman said it right. I think it's still diesel fuel that saves more lives than a lot of these other things that we talk about. I like Jerry Fortuna's lower extremity data set. I thought it was the first time I've ever seen a nice lower extremity injury and really sort of the the demographics and the outcomes from some of these bypasses. Um, I was always taught these lower extremities below the knee, don't worry about them. Uh, But it's nice to see that vascular general surgeons are are treating them and really what the outcomes are. Um, And it was nice to see that people aren't shunting. I really thought that that kind of has been hammered home in the last five years from our war experience. But people aren't doing it. And the groups that they actually looked at these hospitals are heavy military people. So for me, that was really kind of surprising. Yeah, and I I agree that hammers home the point that a lot of what we're seeing in the military experience is you might see once in a career at home, Mm -hmm. but it is not the same injuries. It's Mm -hmm. not the same management. It's not the same situation. Mm -hmm. All right, and any any other studies you want to mention? No, those are really okay. excellent. So. Yeah, I thought we had a nice session. I was really proud of the Agreed. group and uh, exciting. Fun All day. right. Yeah, it was a great session. Thanks, guys. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. All right, I'm here with Carlos Rodriguez, who moderated this morning's session on coagulation. Uh, so, Carlos, why don't you tell us about the top couple uh, presentations from your session? Sure. I, I really enjoyed uh, trauma-induced coagulopathy in a critically injured uh, pediatric population. Definition, contributing factors, and impact on outcomes uh, from, uh, it was presented by Dr. Leeper from uh, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Uh, I found it fascinating that uh, INR uh, was able to predict, or was a significant predictor of mortality amongst uh, the pediatric population. Um, what I really was, what I really would like to see them uh, go on to uh, uh, to further elucidate is: Does it really matter if I'm able to correct the INR, or is this just a predictor that's independent and is un- is not cha- or is unable to be changed uh, based on my uh, uh, clinical care. Yeah, and, and what kind of INR cutoffs did they find were, were useful? Uh, they found that uh, an INR above three, or excuse me, one point three, uh, was a st- was a st- statistically significant for uh, uh, develop or for mortality uh, in this patient population. All right, and uh, any other ones you like from the session? Uh, the other paper, another paper I enjoyed was uh, how long should we fear long-term risks of venous thromboembolism in patients with traumatic brain injury. Uh, this was uh, uh, presented by Dr. Olafahu out of uh, Brigham, and William, uh, Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital. Uh, what I liked about this paper is they followed uh, trauma patients uh, with TBI uh, for at least a year out from, from injury, uh, and they showed that even after patients are discharged from the hospital that there is a significant risk, risk for developing VTE uh, events uh, after sustaining a traumatic brain injury. So what do you think of their message? Should we be putting these patients on anticoagulation for a year or more? We do it in cancer patients. We do it in total joints patients. I was just say we, we anticoagulate them after we uh, uh, discharge them from the hospital. Um, we, uh, we do it in the, uh, the morbidly obese patients as well. This, I think, is something that's worthwhile of investigating. All right. Any other, any other highlights from your session or, or favorite sessions from the meeting? 
Uh, one other thing I'd like to mention is the group from Pittsburgh, uh, where they talked about universal whole blood for traumatic hemorrhage shock, a pilot study to determine safety. This was this was presented by Alan Murdoch. Um, I think this is just the beginning of a uh, of, of again of taking military lessons learned and bringing it to the civilian population. And what do they mean by universal whole blood? Because usually it's you have to exactly type and cross them with their same blood type. Um, uh, they used a low titer O blood um, in their in their uh, pilot study, um, and they were able to. Or excuse me, they gave uh, two units of blood uh, based on uh, uh, clinical judgment um, whether or not somebody would need a transfusion. And obviously, we've been using whole blood for a long time in the military setting. Uh, where do you think this is heading in the civilian setting? Well, I think that it will uh, warm fresh whole blood has been shown to decrease mortality, and I think that that is where it's headed. Yeah, it's automatic damage control resuscitation. All right, well, thanks a lot, Carlos. We appreciate it. All right, I'm here with Alex Eastman, who's the chair of the Violence and Injury Prevention Section, and Jamie Coleman, who's one of our poster professors for the meeting. Uh, so, Alex, you chaired the uh, uh, Violence and Injury Prevention Session. I want you to tell us about your top uh, couple papers that you heard that session. Sure, thanks, Matt. So the 2016 Cox Templeton Injury Prevention Paper Competition was great this year. There were six outstanding papers that were brought to the meeting to be presented. Uh, we identified a runner-up and a winner. Uh, the runner-up uh, was a paper presented out of Boston, uh, work done by Dave King's group, who basically took the ideas presented in the Hartford Consensus Hemorrhage Control Program and brought those ideas and introduced them to an elementary school. And basically, the, the abstract was entitled Creating the First Hartford Consensus Compliant Elementary School in the United States. And, and that's exactly what they did. That was the runner-up of the competition. The winner of the paper competition was from the Carolinas Medical Center. And Britt Christmas Group, who's had a long history of injury prevention work uh, in North Carolina, uh, conducted what's really rare in injury prevention research, which is a, uh, a randomized controlled trial uh, of a targeted seatbelt intervention uh, at a high school there in Charlotte. Really just a, both outstanding works, and I would recommend that as you're looking for these papers to come out in the coming months in the Journal of Trauma, that you definitely take a look at those two. And so what did they find when they did that randomized study? So the, you know, the idea... Hold on a second. Let me see that. Now you're going to... I just... So Britt and his group found that, that a clear lower rate of seatbelt usage in adolescents compared to their to their adult peers. And so their targeted intervention was uh, directed at those teenage youth, the data collection for the longer-term results. You always see an, an immediate uh, increase in seatbelt use, but they're continuing to collect data for a longer-term analysis of the success of the intervention. All right, great. And Jamie, you were one of the poster professors this year. Uh, so why don't you tell us about the top couple posters that were in your section? Yes, thank you, Matt. You know, we had some really great interesting posters, and I'm really excited to see um, what these projects turn into. But, you know, one was presented by Dr. Nicole Fox from Cooper University, and it really spoke to what Dr. Keurig just mentioned in his presidential address about our lack of training for colleagues and early, um, early career attendings about billing and coding. And so what they did was they actually got a... Um, clinical documentation specialist that rounded with them and 
short version is it increased their overall revenue recovery by over $1.1 million. And it was interesting because this specialist um, reviewed not only what they were doing that day, but reviewed pretty much all of their notes and would make corrections. Some of those corrections gained more money, some some lost, but overall with a net increase of $1.1 million. So I'm really interested um, to see where this could go. And quite honestly, I'm looking forward to take some of this information back to my institution at IU. Well, so if you make that much money for your institution, then you have to demand they use it to send you to the East meeting. <laughs> well, first, you know, it was, first class. It was She's a, already here. I, was I know. Well, it definitely was not first class. Um, Dr. Fockery, my co-poster professor, did mention, he said, you know, before you even start this uh, project at your institution, really the smart thing to do is to go to them first and say, you know, if we find this, what percentage back is the division going to get? So it was really great advice all the way around. All right. And what else was in your section that you, that you, you know, liked? What else that what I thought was really innovative was came out of UC Davis, Dr. Galante, and it was presented by uh, Dr. Ben Keller. And it's a replacement of the swine model for teaching Raboa. Um, of course, I'm sure it was a play on words, but they it's called a HAM model, um, hemodynamically <laughs> adjustable. And it's really interesting. Overall, together, it's cost about $10,000 to build this. And we all know that taking a course and sending your faculty, if you have more than three faculty, you're going to be over 10000 very quickly. So this was very interesting. They have some work to do in you know, confirming placement, just as we would in a clinical setting. But I think it was very, very promising. Matt, how about you? You led a poster session. What do you think? Yeah. All right. Well, th there were a couple really good posters. One of them was out of Wake Forest, and it was looking at the significance of isolated pelvic free fluid on CT scan after abdominal trauma. Uh, and, and I know, you know, we currently worry a lot when we see free fluid if there's not a solid organ injury. In fact, we used to do a mandatory laparotomy for that. Well, they looked at a couple hundred of their patients and all their CT scans, and the ones who had isolated small volume of pelvic-free fluid, first off, they found that it was pretty common. Uh, it, they found it in up to 30% of the patients in their cohort. They also found it was equally prevalent in men as in women, when we often think of it as physiologic fluid in females. They saw it just as often in, in men. The interesting thing was they found really no significant injuries associated with that. Hmm. You know, no significant bowel injuries. Uh, there was one patient who developed a delayed colon perforation that probably had nothing to do with that finding. Uh, so, so their take-home message was that it may be safe to send these patients home as long as they have a benign abdominal exam, even with a little bit of free fluid on their pelvic CT. Uh, and then the other interesting one was by the group at Mass General, along with their industry partners, Arsenal Medical. Uh, and they were looking at, uh, this was another generation of the studies they've been doing on expandable foam for injecting into the abdominal cavity to stop abdominal hemorrhage. Um, they've done a bunch of animal models on this. This was actually a training model looking at training first responders to inject this uh, procedure and use their device. Uh, and what they found is that after a relatively short training period of a, a two-hour course, uh, that uh, EMTs uh, and doctors could all reliably uh, deploy this device uh, and inject the uh, pre-hospital foam. Uh, what they haven't looked at yet is how well they retain that and how well, you know, how long that knowledge sticks and holds, but that's the plan for their next studies. And, and I think that's going to be an interesting potential intervention for non-compressible truncal hemorrhage.
So how long until you think both of us are carrying that in our packs? Uh, for, for pre-hospital, I think that's a stretch. Uh, <laughs> but I think it could be an interesting intervention in the emergency department setting or in a, you know, a forward or austere hospital that really can't do damage control surgery, but they have someone who can reliably inject the peritoneal cavity. Um, there's a high price of guessing wrong with this stuff, so uh, I, I don't think it's ready for field use yet. Uh, any other uh, favorite sessions or events you guys had for the meeting? You know, I'm a little biased um, with my no-suit session, but it is truly one of my favorite sessions of the meeting, and I think it really embodies what EAST is about, and that's joining people of all levels of experience to provide a chance to network, make new relationships, and find new mentors. Uh, I will second that completely as a mentor, in, in which I don't feel old enough to be, but as a mentor in that session. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, he's definitely old enough. <laughs> uh, as a, as a mentor in that session, I can tell you, if you're here next year in 2017 and you want to see what this organization is all about in one room, come to No Suit, No Problem. It is really a real microcosm of exactly what EAST has always been about, which is to advance science, foster relationships, and build careers. It all occurs in that room. All right. Well, we're all looking forward to 2017 and another great meeting. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Okay. I'm here with Deb Stein, who moderated the Quick Shot session. Uh, what, what were the couple ones that you really liked from your session? Yeah, I mean, I thought the Quick Shot, the whole format just worked really well. Loved having kind of, for people with short attention spans like me, I think the uh, six-minute shot, you know, and then move on was really great. There were a couple of really interesting papers that I thought were presented. Um, I thought uh, Mark Sapoli presented some work that their institution's been doing on embedding a hospitalist into their trauma service, which they showed actually decreased mortality in readmissions, which I think is a really cool concept, really cool data, really nicely presented. Uh, there was another economic analysis, which I thought was really interesting. It was one of the first I'd seen of looking at the need uh, for additional imaging, i.e. MRI, uh, for clearance of the cervical spine in obtunded patients. Uh, the group... Um, uh, Dr. Erdl presented uh, looking at a cost-effectiveness analysis, which I thought was a really interesting way of, of evaluating a very highly contentious process. Um, and, and, and what did they conclude? Was it cost-effective? They actually concluded it was not, but Dr. Duane, who discussed, discussed the paper, did bring up a number of uh, potential issues with the, how they did it, their cost analysis with respect to the – they used Medicare uh, billing rates versus private. You know, so I think, I think it's something that, that it was one of those – Papers that, that, you know, that Dr. Erdl got out there and presented and caused a lot of discussion, which I think is what this is all about, is making sure that we're out there and we're talking about these things. And we have a few opinionated members. So no, 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 good. none of those. <laughs> Definitely nobody in this room. <laughs> all right. And was there uh, any other ones, or is those are your top two? Those are probably my top two from that session. Okay. But, again, there was a lot of great science all around this week. So yeah. and, and real quick, you want to tell everyone what the quick shot format is? A lot of people might not have yeah, seen Yeah, absolutely. Them. It was great. It's basically these are um, after the orals are selected. Our next, uh, for the program committee, was the next 20 top highest uh, ranked abstracts get selected. It's basically a, for, a forum where it's a six-minute presentation or a three-minute presentation and then two and a half minutes for one question from a discussant and then a response. So it's quick turnover. It's you get up there, you present your five slides, um, you get to it gets to be discussed in a peer reviewed format. But you're off the stage, and we moved on to the next topic, and so you get to hear a lot of great science really quickly. Yep, it was it was great. I loved it. It was the, the we can call it the ADD session. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm also here with Meyer Patel, who moderated the uh, session of papers on emergency general surgery. 
So what, what did you see from your session that you liked? Yeah, the two um, key papers from our session were uh, paper number 33, Acute Care Surgery and Emergency General Surgery, Addition by Subtraction uh, by Dr. Burns and the University of Maryland's group uh, under Dr. Diaz. And uh, this was a phenomenal paper. I think this is going to become a landmark paper really demonstrating the um, the value of an acute care surgery service as quantified by patient encounters, RVUs, charges, and they really demonstrated um, a lot of uh, tangible, quantifiable increase um, to the benefit of their institution, to their administrators, um, really with no effect of um, or adverse um, effect on mortality. And, um, you know, I, I think this exemplifies uh, the need for acute care surgery um, as being a, a paradigm for a lot of institutions, and hopefully it'll provide um, division, department leadership, as well as administrators, um, that ammunition they need to sort of argue the, the utility of, of, of a full-time um, service. Um, so that was one of the, the great papers of our session, and the, the subsequent paper was paper number 34, The Transforming Power of Early Career Acute Care Surgery Research Scholarships on Academic Productivity, and this was led by Ben Zarzer, um, one of our East uh, board members. And um, in short, um, uh, <laughs> he looked at the scholarships awarded by national trauma organizations, including East. Um, the Trauma Research Scholarship, as well as the AAST, and looked for conversion rates on publication as well as coin of the realm, as has been termed it, as converting to RO1 level funding. And really, earning one of these scholarships early on was the ticket to, to obtaining that coin of the realm and academic success in research. And the upshot is... We, as organizations um, across the country, really should support young investigators more and more and double down on our commitment um, towards young investigators. And Ben is doing this, and he's doing this within the context of the East organization and forming an InvestC structure, which is basically um, trying to help researchers on the front end of study design, trying to get them plugged into biostatisticians. And I think that's the new model of support um, and East is, is proud to be part of that. So thank you. All right. Yeah, and for all our members who are listening, look for the InvestC information. It's going to be a great project where they will assist you with uh, design and implementation of research studies and, and trying to get those early grants. All right. Well, thanks a lot. It was a great meeting, and thanks for talking with us, Mike. Yeah, you got it. All right. I'm here with Elliot Hout, who moderated Quick Shot Session 1. And, uh, Elliot, why don't you tell us about your couple of favorite presentations from that session? Sure. Before I start, I just want to say this is a new attempt at East to to move forward uh, with a new style for the meeting, and I personally loved it. It's a quick, easy way to hear about 10 great topics in an hour. So uh, I had to pick three. I liked all the papers. Um, The first one I picked is actually quick shot number four, insurance status is associated with complex presentation in emergency general surgery patients. This is by uh, Jonathan Scott and a group uh, from uh, the Brigham. And I thought it was a pretty interesting project. They really looked at this question of insurance, not uh, with the outcome of uh, mortality, uh, but with the question of do patients without insurance uh, have different presentations 
of their emergency general surgery problem. So are they sicker when they get to you? And, and found that uh, insurance status is independently associated with severity of disease presentation in emergency general surgery conditions on a national scale. I think this is one thing that hadn't really been explored very well, and I'm glad to see a group working on it. Yeah, that's a great one, and be interesting to see if universal insurance policies will change that. Absolutely. So that's obviously the question of, you know, the next step. And all these papers, you know, you only get three minutes to hear about it. The most important part, I think, is the next step. All right. Okay. How about so number two? Number two. So um, I'm clearly a little biased in this one because I was the senior author. But I will tell you, this I thought was a really neat approach. This paper, the next one I chose is quick shot number eight. Police transport versus ground EMS, a trauma system level evaluation of pre-hospital care policies and their effect on clinical outcomes. Uh, first author is Mike Wandling. So Mike is a resident at Northwestern uh, in Chicago, and he's doing two years as an American College of Surgeons clinical scholar, doing clinical research. Uh, and Historically, these people have really focused on general surgery, NISQIP-type projects. And Mike is the first one of these scholars who's interested in trauma. So he has worked on the National Trauma Data Bank. Uh, and I got hooked up with him through Carl Billy Moria, who helps run that program. Uh, and the benefit of this paper is Mike has direct access to all of the NTDB-identified data. So a project that I had always been wanting to do is cluster hospitals by city to look at pre-hospital uh, trauma care. I've never been able to do that in the public use file of the NTDB because hospitals are, are, identify, are identified by a number, but you don't know where they are. So I can't combine the four hospitals in Baltimore, Maryland, or the five trauma centers in Philadelphia in, in any way. Mike lives behind the firewall at the American College of Surgeons and was able to do that. Uh, and then, you know, worked with Avery Nathans, who helps run uh, that program. So uh, I think this is a first step looking at aggregating data at a system level rather than the only geography in the College of Surgeons uh, NTDB that you used to be able to do was, you know, by region of the country. Uh, in some ways, the, the findings are less important, basically that uh, trauma patients, EMS versus police, are about the same. That's one of the findings. But the more important finding is um, over 85% of all the police transports are in just three cities. And that's where the future direction can be. If you want to study police transport, don't study in Baltimore. We have very few. Study it in Philadelphia that has over 50% of the data for all police transport in the whole country. And were you able to look at any subgroups that you think would have a benefit of EMS transport or a benefit of police transport? So, you know, that, like I said, this is very much of a first pass overall look at aggregating by city. Um, we've not yet drilled down. We, we broke down penetrating into, into you know, the, the typical uh, gunshot wound, stab wound. But I don't know that we've quite figured out who has a benefit and who doesn't. But I think it's a first step to say, hey, maybe this is safe. And cities like Philadelphia that have a policy are on the cutting edge. But also, those are the places you might be able to study it better than other places that don't do any of it. All right, and, and I'll say you, you may be biased, but I had that – I circled two of the top ones from that session, and that was one of them. So I okay. agree with your choice. Thanks. <laughs> and okay. third. And then number three, or the third one, is uh, quick shot number nine. Uh, this is performance of a regional trauma network 
a statewide analysis. Um, regional trauma networks uh, are, I think, the way to go. You know, there's ongoing debate in many, in many, many states right now of how should the trauma system be set up. Um, and I think the idea that people are focusing on what happens when you add trauma centers, take trauma centers away, change levels of designation, uh, or hospitals uh, aggregate into big systems. These kinds of questions are the important things that large database and registries and, and such can really look at and focus on. So that's why I like this this paper. Um, and they actually broke down broke it down by county to see what happened in each county as um, uh, things were changing in the state. I'll just say that. Uh, and I think this idea of uh, using big data to change trauma care is going to be critical. Uh, and I would just say uh, be on the lookout for a work from the Institute of Medicine on exactly this topic, using big data in a learning healthcare system, this is one of the papers that I thought did something like that. All right, great. And, uh, and, and I'll just mention, I also saw one other quick shot in that session that I thought was pretty good, quick shot number one, and that was by Stephanie Polides, I hope I pronounced that right, and the group out of the Mayo Clinic. Uh, and it was interesting, they looked at massive transfusion in non-trauma surgical patients uh, and how to define it and the outcomes. And... Uh, they found some interesting findings. The main finding was that they couldn't find a benefit of giving a balanced damage control resuscitation approach for non-trauma surgical patients that were bleeding. Uh, they also used the critical admission threshold as a definition, which is greater than three units in 60 minutes, as opposed to the old greater than 10 units in 24 hours definition. Uh, I think it was some interesting work and, and certainly points that we still needed to find massive transfusion policies and, and the populations that benefit from them. All right. Well, uh, any other any other favorite sessions or talks from this meeting? Or can't miss sessions. You want to recommend? Honestly, I think this meeting is great. I mean, I, I wish I could be at everything. It's tough when there's sometimes parallel sessions going on um, or other things I have to go do. But I think the science here has been been awesome this year. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Elliot. Okay, I'm here with Meyer Patel and Melissa Warda, two of the poster professors. So uh, why don't you tell me about a couple of the posters you liked in your session? Yeah, so uh, timing of venous thromboembolism, prophylaxis, and severe traumatic brain injury uh, done by Dr. Burns' group um, out of Canada at Sunnybrook, and this is a propensity-matched cohort study, really well done health services research, um, looking at multiple thousands of in individuals, um, trying to tease out early thromboprophylaxis versus late prophylaxis, and looking at three major uh, outcomes being uh, pulmonary embolism, um, uh, deep venous thrombosis, and uh, death. And really, the short of the story was that uh, early prophylaxis um, seemed to be associated on a number of uh, subgroup analyses um, uh, with a lower risk of pul pulmonary embolus and uh, with no significant increase in bad things, um, such as intracranial complications, other delayed neurosurgical interventions, or death. So this was a really well-done uh, study, and uh, I'd congratulate them as being one of the stellar um, uh, members of our group. So what, what did they define as early? Uh, so Less than 72 hours. Okay, that's reasonable. So is, is that what you're doing at your center? Yeah, so we have a mark of around 72 hours, depending on when the, the clock ticks, and that's very attending 
dependent. So it could be 48, it could be closer to 96, depending on how you interpret that. And we took a poll of our 25 strong group um, of poster presenters and faculty that were there, and it seemed like the needle has moved to most centers starting DVT prophylaxis and TBI right around the 72-hour mark with probably a quarter of folks starting it at 48 hours. And that was the mood of the moment of, of the people attending. All right. Yeah, and that's a big change from what we used to do. All right, well, what was your other one? So our second poster that we um, found interesting was a uh, animal study about a novel modified varus needle that's superior to angiocatheters for decompression of tension pneumothoraces, and they did this in a, a pork model or a swine model done by Fluke and her group out of the Naval Medical Center in Portsmouth. And this is actually a really interesting basic science study in using animal models where they tested traditional long angiocatheters against a novel modified varus needle um, in a a pig in which they induced a pneumothorax using CO2 and a tension pneumo, and they used that by measuring blood pressure and looked at rates of recovery of the blood pressure. And then they also then further let the animal go into PEA and look at the rates of recovery comparing the two modalities. And interestingly enough, um, the angiocatheter had a significant failure rate, as we all suspect, as it does in most of the literature. Um, but their varus needle actually worked very well, and they actually had a second modification that worked even better than the first uh, version of it, and with zero, the second version had zero failure rate. And so it was very interesting. They also did a safety study and really showed that it didn't cause any additional injury that you wouldn't see with an angiocath as well. So it gives a little bit of promise on the horizon back to uh, a needle-type deep compression using a different device. Yeah, and I, I love that study. That was actually presented at the COT, and, and I think it points out that we know these needles fail a lot, but we've always assumed it's they're failing because they're not getting put into place. But even these needles that were placed in a lab in the right position were failing. So, so why do we know why they're failing? I mean, they're they're put in into the thoracic cavity. Any yeah, idea I think why that's they're the, failing? So, I think that's the question clinically that we all have. And should we be doing needle decompression? Where we should we be doing this? And I think this study helps drive forward um, the science behind needle decompression, which really is getting. Uh, pretty beat up and maligned nowadays. The other cool aspect of the study is really partnering with a company, doing tech transfer, talking about how to modify devices, and actually push, pushing some of the engineering um, behind our trauma science. So I really want to c- congratulate the group from Portsmouth, the Navy, and Dr. Flute. All right. Well, thanks, guys. That's great. All right. I'm here with Britt Christmas, who's one of our uh, East board members and who was a poster professor yesterday. Uh, so did you have a couple of favorite posters in your session, Britt? I did. Uh, one of the uh, one of my favorite posters uh, dealt with recurrent uh, violent injury. Um, basically, what they found is over a three-year period that uh, 9.9% of their violently injured patients uh, returned, um, whether it was to, to their trauma center or to a, another another center close by. Um, the the highest risk individuals that they found were the homeless. So clearly a, uh, a group that we can potentially target more interventions toward that, that certainly have less less resources. Um, it's, uh, otherwise, they, they didn't, didn't really see increased risk factors associated with, with ethnicities. And um, actually in the, uh, in the Hispanic population saw a decreased risk of, of recidivism. And the, uh, one, of the, one of the other things they found is that during the initial injury, if their injury severity score was higher, then they had 
less chance of, of recurring, which uh, which begs the you know the question of more severe injuries. Maybe that stuck with that patient a lot more than people that were were minorly injured that that went back out on the on the streets. But clearly, they identified the homeless as. Uh, as a group of patients that maybe we can intervene when they're in the hospital and try and get them some, some resources so they don't come back into our trauma centers. Oh, that's great. Where, where was that poster out of? Uh, that poster was out of the uh, University of Pennsylvania. Okay. And then uh, any other ones that you really liked? Yes, uh, there was uh, another poster um, uh, dealing with geographic distribution of uh, trauma services in the United States and kind of looking at the uh, availability of our trauma centers and trauma surgeons to, uh, to, to patient needs. And what they found were that uh, there's an un- uneven distribution of our services across the United States. Uh, really doesn't correlate with our state-level uh, uh, variations in clinical need. So clearly this, uh, this is uh, an issue that we're all beginning to identify as as some trauma centers are popping up right next door to, to others. And, and I know in, in, in our own state, we're, we're beginning to analyze the true needs and start to look at real numbers of population and admissions and, and injury severity, time to transfer, and try and have some more solid data on where trauma centers are needed rather than, than really a lot of their placement being arbitrary. So, so why do you think we have so many trauma centers that have nothing to do with the need? Well, it's uh, as administration uh, often likes to to tell us is that well, trauma loses money, which we all know that's that's not the fact. Um, and, and as we've seen, some some organizations that are, are for profit uh, developing trauma centers that uh, that clearly the center. Uh, hospitals have a financial interest in becoming trauma centers, and they realize this as a major source of, of revenue. So I, I think we truly have to balance the, the economic interests of institutions with what the population and the citizens of our states really need. All right. And then I just want to know if, if you've had a favorite talk or a favorite session from the entire meeting. I think my one of my favorite sessions is is the leadership development workshop. Um, I can say as a, a former recipient of, of East Leadership Development Workshop Scholarship, uh, that's where I, I picked up several of my my leadership skills. It was really my introduction to to how to become a leader, and I think this year really centered on the core values of leaders and doing the right thing and to always move forward with honorable intentions that, that when you do that, that's when you become a, a real leader. And also focusing on not only who our mentors are, but how we begin to become mentors as we, as we age through the process, so to speak, that it's, it's now, now our responsibility to become that next generation, to train the young trauma surgeon to become the leader of tomorrow, both within our organization as well as within their own. And I've heard nothing but positive comments about the leadership session. So who do you think should be taking that? I mean, should it, should it be residents and fellows only? Is it, is it applicable to junior faculty or, or any faculty? I think it's really applicable to, to any faculty, and um, and even even part of, of one of my talks that that I, I reminded all the participants is 
you need to refresh your leadership skills about every two to three years because because it's like everything else. If we don't continue to try and improve ourselves, we'll become stagnant. So I, I think that's one of the the keys with the the leadership shop or leadership development course is that it offers opportunity to everybody at every level. And I would highly encourage our young members as they are coming out and getting involved in the organization to to try and take this leadership leadership workshop because it will show you what you need to do as a leader, identify who you are as a leader, and especially when you're participating on committees both within East and your own institution, it gives you valuable skills and strategies in order to navigate the landscape. All right, great. And it'll be running again at the 2017 meeting? It'll be back again at the the 2017 meeting. Was um, uh, actually started by our uh, uh, outgoing president Stan Couric, and uh, has been been in place ever since. All right. Well, we had a great meeting. We're looking forward to next year's. Thanks for talking with us. Great. Thank you, Matt. I'm here with Andrea Pakula, a trauma and bariatric surgeon from Kern Medical Center, uh, who's attended many of the East sessions. So, uh, Andrea, what, what were some of the don't miss or favorite sessions that you attended? Um, hi, Matt. Yeah, I think some of, the, the, some of my favorite sessions in this particular meeting were some of the quick shot sessions, which were really good presentations um, of, of uh, work at various institutions, and it gives them a chance. It's a very quick um, description of what their paper was and allows them to a- answer some questions as well. I really enjoyed the multi-center study uh, or the multi-center uh, trial session um, gives you know many institutions, maybe smaller institutions that don't have as much opportunity to do research to get involved with some big, big um, trials, and then probably the um, the scientific papers, which should change your practice session, was was one of the best ones. I really enjoyed that. All right, why don't, why don't we talk about what were the uh, top two or three papers that should change your practice? Um, well, you know, I think. Um, some of the interesting ones were the age blood. It's been a it's been of controversy, um, thinking that age blood is going to lead to uh, worse outcomes, maybe higher mortality. And there are a number of papers, recent papers that they showed out of uh, this past year that showed that there really was no difference. Um, also, you know, it was a few years back, laparoscopic lavage for Hinchy three diverticulitis was thought to be the the standard. And the newer trials, the Lola trial that's come out, and some of the other ones that are coming up show that that may not be the case, and and uh, sigmoidectomy may actually be um, preferred in those particular patients. And then you know we did the a recent trauma cast uh, debate on acute appendicitis and whether those patients should be treated with antibiotics alone versus uh, surgery, and um, they discussed the APAC trial, and um, you know I think just a the a plug to the surgery group that <laughs> appendectomy really is the standard and sure cure for appendicitis over uh, over uh, antibiotics, at least in the majority of patients. And uh, what uh, what about you, uh, Matt? What were what were some of your um, must go to sessions at the meeting? Yeah, well, uh, I, I think the the papers that change your practice. I think the engage the masters is a great session, uh, particularly for fellows, residents, and junior staff, and you get to hear how some of those masters handle complex problems. Uh, and then I thought that the scientific presentations were, were great at the meeting. Um, the papers that change your practice, uh, I, unfortunately, I like the same ones you did, so don't have much to add, other than they also discussed uh, a paper on uh, IBC filters, 
Uh, and that, that again showed that there's really, there's no proven benefit of IVC filters, especially prophylactic ones. Uh, and in fact, in this large analysis, the, it increased the rate of DVTs, which we've known for a while, and it didn't prevent PEs. So, uh, so I think especially the prophylactic IVC filter should be something that's rarely, rarely done. And I think that was a great summary of that paper. Um, how about the scientific sessions? Uh, what were a couple of your favorite presentations from those sessions? I, I really, you know, hypertonic saline is being used so much now, especially in the traumatic brain injury patients. And I, I really uh, enjoyed the paper out of um, Houston that looked at uh, hypertonic saline um, resuscitation versus your standard crystalloid resuscitation and showing um, early uh, primary fascial closure in the open abdomen patients. I thought that was a, a good paper, interesting concept. Um, and also, um, one of the uh, papers out of shock trauma, looking at the um, if there was any benefit to open uh, cardiac massage versus your closed cardiac massage, and they showed that really there was no no difference in um, return of spontaneous circulation or improvement in entitled CO2 in those patients undergoing open cardiac massage versus closed. And so, really, if you know if you're doing your ED thoracotomy for the purpose of resuscitation, it might not be the the way to go. Yeah, and I think that's a great message from that paper. Uh, any others that you really liked? Um, yeah, I enjoyed the uh, you know the other big thing, and I'm sure you you encounter it in your institution as well. Is we often battle with neurosurgery as to when to start chemoprophylaxis in our traumatic brain injured patients, but USC. Um, did a nice uh, a nice study looking at the therapeutic anticoagulation in patients with VTE or PE in uh, TBI patients, showing that you know the the it's not uh, the risk isn't as as high as we may have thought, and um, worsening bleed isn't that high either. So maybe uh, therapeutic anticoagulation is is safe in these patients. Uh, and then the, the third paper, and, and I'm going to have to give a shout-out to my institution, Madigan Army Medical Center, was presented by uh, one of our residents that looked at a uh, smartphone-based thermal imaging device. Uh, and, and what we found is that you can attach this device to your iPhone, and it can give you a very reliable measure of perfusion. And in this study, we looked at uh, using it in concert with Reboa, and found that taking a quick image could tell you whether your Reboa balloon was deployed, uh, and you could also tell the level of aortic occlusion uh, or the zone of aortic occlusion that your balloon was in just by the heat signatures. Uh, preliminary pilot study, but uh, we're excited about some more data. All right, well, thanks a lot for talking with us, Andrea. Thank you. All right, uh, I'm here with Luis Garcia, who is one of our poster professors. Uh, so uh, what were a couple of the best posters in your section, Luis? Uh, so two of the uh, uh, nice presentations we had, uh, the first one was a presentation from uh, Kentucky uh, looking at the uh, effects of diabetes and outcomes in uh, general surgery patients. Uh, and then they, uh, you know, found that uh, patients with diabetes had much worse uh, outcomes in terms of mortality and morbidity. Uh, the other one uh, that was a very nice uh, presentation was looking at uh, HIV uh, patients and again looking at outcomes in different uh, general surgery uh, uh, procedures and again similarly found that even though in the era of uh, uh, excellent uh, retroviral therapy patients still with HIV did worse uh, overall when compared to uh, non-HIV patients. And those were both in emergency general surgery populations? Those were all in emergency general uh, surgery populations, yeah. All Looking right. at a national inpatient sample uh, registry in EGS patients.
Okay. And any other uh, any other posters you saw that caught your eye? Uh, they were all very good. Uh, those seem to be the uh, the top two. Uh, our last poster uh, uh, were from the folks out in Dallas who uh, was doing some good work looking at outcomes in uh, emergency cholecystectomies versus elective uh, cholecystectomy and its impact on outcomes, uh, which I think will have some uh, implications as uh, CMS and outcomes are uh, looked at more closely uh, to make sure that we differentiate uh, that the EGS population is probably different than the elective general surgery uh, population. All right. Well, great. It was a great poster session, and thanks for talking with us. Thank you. Uh, I'm here with a new East member, uh, John Van Horn. So uh, why don't you give us a quick introduction, John? Hey, everybody. This is John Van Horn. I'm actually a trauma physician assistant at uh, Legacy Emanuel Hospital in Portland, Oregon. I'm also the president of the American Association of Surgical PAs. All right. So, so what made you join East as a PA, John? I think the thing that interested me most about East was uh, that they extended the hand first to the advanced practice provider. Uh, they actually have an ad hoc committee uh, that addresses our issues. And um, you know, the fact that there's, it's a young uh, group, a young environment, uh, a lot of residents, uh, it's really neat to see our fellow, uh, the people that we've trained with as well. So you've been to most of the meeting now. Uh, did, were there any favorite sessions or talks or events you, that you attended? Uh, definitely like the um, all of the scientific papers, you know, the things that are actually going to change our practice. Um, I really enjoyed the review of the um, you know most important articles that should have changed your practice. Um, and then the breakout sessions, uh, especially the advanced practice provider one where we had a chance to um, network with other people and address issues that everybody's having across the country. And then what, what do you think of the prospects of... Uh our organization and the AASPA and other advanced practitioner organizations starting to collaborate and work more closely together. So that was one of the main reasons I came here actually was to start working that, that piece, uh, especially from an educational hub uh, is what we're trying to develop for the American Association of Surgical PAs, but also outreaching to the um, advanced you know, practitioner nurse uh, for the surgical education. If they can't come to the East meeting, they can come to ASPA, uh, but also developing um, just those relations ac- across the country to, to be able to attend the alternate meetings. All right. Well, we, uh, we're glad to have you here, and we're looking forward to having you more involved in the organization. Me too. Thanks for the time, and, man. And make sure, let's get back, let's get back to dodgeball. Yeah, dodgeball. <laughs> That's all. all right. I'm here at the East Dodgeball Tournament. Alex Eastman, as chair of the violence and injury prevention section, what do you think about this? Well, Matt, I can tell you that uh, we've uh, looked at some of the greatest public health problems in the field of trauma surgery this year. But I think as we move forward into the 2016-2017 cycle, uh, President Stassen and uh, the board of directors has decided that we're going to impose a, uh, not mandatory, but an elective training program. Because really... You can't just come out here on game day, Matt. You uh, you fight like you train. And really, we're going to have to get these guys working on a little bit of a better... What I can tell you from looking at this and studying this extensively today is well, we're going to need a hell of a training program for the next 12 months. All right, so more of a public health program, or more of a public health problem. East Dodgeball or Elliot Hout in shorts? Ooh, too close to call at this point. Let me get back to you. All right, thanks, Alex. Absolutely. All right, and I am here with our new East president, Nicole Stassen. Um, Nicole is following on the heels of Stan Couric, who just uh, turned over the gavel. And I know you two have been have been very close. And uh, just want to see if you have any uh, comments on Stan's presidency and, and what you learned and took away from it. Well, I think Stan, um, I've had the, the pleasure of serving on multiple 
um, what used to be called committees, now called sections, um, with Stan uh, I usually running those sections um, and me being a committee or section member. And I think that what I've learned from Stan is that um, he's an incredibly even-keeled, um, egalitarian leader. And I think what makes him very special is he really um, enables the people below him to, to do their best and, and lets them shine through. And I think that is an invaluable lesson. I think he did it during his presidency, making sure that each division and each section was able to flourish. If you look at some of the things that have happened over this past year, you know, the expansion of the career cast, the continuation of the leadership development course, and the the um, the change in content of that, the addition of the new fellows workshop, you know, keeping it all so grounded in what East is all about. And um, I wouldn't be where I am today without all the work that we, we had been able to do together over the years. And you've obviously been involved with East for quite a while. Um, what are the biggest changes you've seen in the organization over, say, the past five to ten years or how it's evolved? I think that um, I think that for East, it's it's evolved in some ways, um, and not in others. And I know that that sounds negative, but that's not the way it's intended. I think when you look at um, what East is, I think you've seen a ton of expansion in what East is outside of the annual assembly. And I think over the last decade that certainly has been a lot easier to do than it was prior. You know, when I was a resident and a fellow, most of what you got from East was published media, the spiral-bound notebook on, you know, these are all the fellowship programs that are in the country, and this is all your contact information, et cetera. And I think with, you know, the expansion of the Internet and the, the East website, and although it existed, um, it certainly wasn't nearly as nimble as it is now, and the type of content we're able to offer outside the annual assembly has exploded in the last decade. But what I, what I meant by saying that, you know, it's changed and it hasn't, although that, that, you know, the content has expanded and our membership has expanded. And, you know, this meeting we had almost 900 attendees. I mean, considering what they started with, you know, 20 people on Longboat Key, it's a humongous change. But what hasn't changed about it is that essence. When you come to an East Annual Assembly, somebody doesn't just look at your badge to see where you're from and what you can do for them. And I think that starts with the leadership. You're just like, hey, my name's Nicole. Who are you? You know, it's like, hi, I'm the East president, and I'm dating you with a discussion. And, you know, for me, coming to my first meeting back uh, 2001, 2002, somewhere along there, I was a, a fellow from, you know, University of Louisville. I wasn't anything. And you have people like Don Jenkins and Mike Pasquale and Mike Rotundo just you know, chit-chatting with you like a human being. And I think that that essence we haven't lost. It would be heartbreaking to lose that. Um, and, you know, looking at the meeting this year, you know, the science is terrific. That, you know, the way the science is being delivered with the addition of some of the Know, the, the quick shot presentations and alterations in the way that we're doing some other things, bringing back some networking sessions that you should just do at the back of the room because it was only, you know, 400 people at the meeting. You know, we're adding all that contact back in to keep that the heart and the soul of what is East while the body has changed and evolved from, you know, an infant to a, I'd like to think we're just a teenager and we're nowhere near grown up yet. All right. Well, we're looking forward to your, your year as president. Um, What's going to be the particular focus uh, of your your presidency year? So the mission for my presidency year is 
Pretty simple. Pay it forward. We do it every day. Um, our East founders did that for us. You know, when you look at what they started now 30 years ago, none of us on the board right now have ever existed in a trauma world where East wasn't there. Think about that. There was what, there was the AAST, and then there was West, and then East came about. Imagine a world without East. It'd be awful. Well, not, you know, probably be different. Something else might have sprung up, but you know, we, we have no concept of what that's like. So, you know, they paid it for it to us by, do, by having this idea and allowing it to grow. We, as the leadership of East, you know, from the board structure, um, et cetera, owe to our membership to continue paying that forward. How could we continue to, to help the young trauma surgeon and develop and whether they're an academic surgeon or um, in a, in a non and I think non-academics is a terrible term, but in, in a different situation, how can we help the, how can we help them all? You know, with our patients, with our practice management guidelines, how are we changing how we take care of our patients? With our injury prevention and violence, how do we um, violence section? How do we keep them from getting injured? How are we making people safer? <coughs> how are we doing our due diligence to our communities? With our families, how are you making sure that? You know, if you have kids or if, you know, your dogs or your kids, whatever, how are you making sure that they're staying that they're staying on target and that you're being available to them? Even for ourselves, we're probably the worst at taking care of ourselves. Certainly I'm guilty of that in, in many ways. Um, so when you look at that, paying it forward to you to make sure that you're healthy, your family to make sure that they're flourishing, our organization that it's continuing to move forward, our patients, our coworkers, that's the mission. Keep paying it forward because that's what makes East East. All right. Well, I know we're all looking forward to a great year under your leadership. Nicole, and thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East. Mm -hmm.